In this next podcast, we are going to talk about two sections of the Charter that place a limitation on the rights guaranteed by the other sections. Section 33, also known as the Notwithstanding Clause, and Section 1, which we talked about briefly at the outset of the last podcast and which we're going to talk about in length here. So Section 33 of the Charter, the Notwithstanding Clause, is a provision that explicitly allows Parliament and the provincial legislatures to pass laws and immunize them from charter review. The section says, Parliament or the legislature of a province may expressly declare in an act of Parliament or of the legislature, as the case may be, that the act or a provision thereof shall operate notwithstanding a provision included in section 2 or sections 7 to 15. It goes on to note section 33 in subsection 3, a declaration made under section 1 shall cease to have effect five years after it comes into force or on such earlier date as may be specified in the declaration, but that it can be reenacted any number of times. So what does this do? Well, this says that Certain provisions of the Charter, Section 2 and 7 through 15, can be legislatively decreed to not apply to legislation passed by either the federal or provincial government. You have to do it expressly in the legislation. It only lasts for five years, but you can make another declaration every five years as long as you'd like. And this provision has been controversial. Now, Sections 2 and 7 through 15 are some of the most important parts of the Charter. Section 2 is the fundamental freedoms section. Expression, religion, these types of things, assembly, are protected in Section 2. Section 7 through 14 are the legal rights section and include key protections for people accused of crimes. And Section 15 is equality. These are the sections that you can pass legislation that will be immune from charter review in relation to. The sections that are not subject to this notwithstanding clause include 3, 4, and 5 about democratic rights, so you can't legislate out democratic rights, mobility rights, and language rights, as well as enforcement and general provisions about the charter's operation. This is a significant check on the degree to which parliamentary supremacy has been overtaken by constitutional supremacy in Canada. That is to say, the degree to which the Charter provides an absolute constraint on the Parliament is dramatically limited by Section 33. There are still some provisions that can't be overridden by Section 33, which are assertions of a constitutional supremacy, but Section 33 limits the extent to which Parliament and the legislatures lost power through the adoption of the Charter. Despite including it in the Charter, the expectation was in 1982 that Section 33 would not be used very often. And the idea was that people aren't going to like being subject to unconstitutional legislation. It's going to be politically disadvantageous to use Section 33 to override the public's charter-protected rights. And furthermore, 
the fact that Section 33 requires a recommitment to the overriding of the Charter Protected Rights means that with a change in government, it would be surprising if very often the new government would come in and say, yes, we too want to deny the public their Charter Protected Rights. And that is true. In reality, Section 33 has been used very rarely. It was invoked in a high-profile way not very long ago in Ontario when there was a decision to shrink the size of the Toronto City Council significantly. And there was a decision that many found constitutionally suspect. I actually thought it was not bad, but many people disagreed with the decision to say that this move to shrink the size of the city council violated expression. In response, the government said, we're going to pass this law and invoke the Section 33 notwithstanding clause. Eventually, there was an agreement whereby the lower court's decision was stayed by the Court of Appeal and the government did not invoke the Section 33. So effectively, they were able to accomplish their goal without using Section 33. But it was a high-profile recent example of the provision being at least threatened to be invoked. But the reality is it is very rarely used. Very rarely do legislatures say we're going to operate, we're going to have this law operate notwithstanding the charter and the guaranteed rights. One exception is that Quebec passed a statute in 1982 that said 49 statutes will all operate notwithstanding the charter. And this is not because of a disagreement with the substance of the charter nor a desire to have unconstitutional law operating in Quebec, but rather it was a result of a strong feeling in Quebec that the Constitution Act 1982 had not been agreed to by the province. And indeed, it, the Quebec did not support the charter at its time of passage. Uh, despite Quebec not supporting the charter, the Constitution applies to Quebec, it applies to the whole country. But following the adoption of the charter, Quebec passed legislation which said, look, everything basically, all these 49 statutes are all going to operate notwithstanding the charter. This stayed in place for roughly 10, or for exactly 10 years until it was allowed to lapse in 1992. The Ford and Quebec case that we have is a case coming out of this dispute where there was a challenge done to the way that Quebec invoked Section 33 through this omnibus legislation. And the Supreme Court said that the way Quebec did this was okay. As long as the legislature is clear it wants to invoke Section 33 and clearly shows what statutes or what provisions of what statute are going to be subject to Section 33, then we're not going to impose any specific magical words that need to be done. We're not going to say that Quebec failed in form to accomplish what it clearly intended to do in substance, that is to have Section 33 be broadly applicable in the province. So what I want you to take away about Section 33 is that first, it is a way in which parliamentary supremacy is elevated despite the far reach of the charter. There is this provision that allows the parliament to reclaim its ability to pass these laws despite the fact that they violate the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. It's a check on the degree to which 
constitutional supremacy has truly limited the parliament's power. There are some things that are outside of parliament's power absolutely under the Constitution Act 1982, indicative of constitutional supremacy. But Section 33 tempers the degree to which constitutional supremacy is the best descriptor of the Canadian system. You want to remember it is rarely used and that there's a political cost to invoking it, at least in theory, but I think that is descriptively true. The charter remains popular and governments enacting laws while expressly acknowledging that they, at a minimum, pose constitutional problems, if not are outright unconstitutional, that's not popular. And a a final thing I didn't mention, but I want you to remember, is there's a funny dynamic where including Section 33 may have the effect of emboldening the judiciary to strike down laws because they say, well, if I strike down this law as unconstitutional, it's not necessarily the final say, Parliament could still respond and pass a law pursuant to Section 33 or make that law subject to Section 33 and thereby accomplish the will of the people if indeed to have that unconstitutional law is the will of the people. So there's a, there's a funny way that the fact that Parliament can respond with Section 33 has been theorized as something that explains why the judiciary in Canada is, is rather re- ready. They're, they're bold in striking down laws in many cases. There's always another action that can be taken. I'm not the final say, so you know, I'll follow my conscience and my view of the Constitution. That's maybe what a judge thinks. So Section 33 is an important section of the Charter to understand and to have an idea of what it is and what it says about the Canadian constitutional order. It's not nearly as important in practice as Section 1, which we're going to get to now. And Section 1, again, this is the Limitations Clause, says, The Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms guarantees the rights and freedoms set out in it, subject only to such reasonable limits prescribed by law as can be demonstrably justified in a free and democratic society. This section contemplates a two-step approach, then. Does the challenge law have the effect of limiting a protected right? If so justification. Can it be justified in a free and democratic society? The first stage of this is about interpreting and implying sections of the charter, and the other half is interpreting and applying section one. We're going to talk more about the provisions of the charter that guarantees in the next lecture, but today we're going to delve into, well, how do you justify? What does it mean to be demonstrably justified in a free and democratic society? Now, this means that the rights guaranteed in the charter are not absolute. The government can justify infringing someone's charter right. This is controversial. Some legal theorists, famously Dworkin, great legal mind, says, look, if you can take away a right simply because it's easier or more convenient in the circumstances, then that really isn't even a right in the first place. That's from a great piece, Taking Rights Seriously. But the reality is that there are going to be limitations on how much government power will be curtailed by a constitutionalized Bill of Rights. This can be done either 
explicitly as the Canadian Charter does. That is, by the document itself, recognizing that infringements of rights can be done if they're justified or on some other standard, or it can be done by reading limitations into the rights themselves. That is, say, the extension of how far freedom of expression, for example, goes is somewhat limited to allow some legitimate state interests to be done. You know, famously, the freedom of expression has been described as not giving you the right to yell fire in a crowded movie theater. So the dynamic is that by having a section one, a justification framework, this empowers the courts to be more principled and broader in articulating the rights themselves, the scope of what is protected under the charter, such that state action that's going to infringe that right needs to at least be justified, can be broader because there's this justification framework that's going to allow valid state objectives to nevertheless be accomplished. And what's important to think about also is the burden lies on the individual asserting an infringement of the right to show that their right has been infringed. However, if you get to that stage, if you can show, no, my right to expression has been infringed, my right to equality has been infringed, the burden shifts and it goes to the state to show that that infringement is demonstrably justified in a free and democratic society. So if you look again at the text of section one, you see that there are three important phrases, such reasonable limits prescribed by law as can be demonstrably justified in a free and democratic society. Reasonable limits prescribed by law demonstrably justified in a free and democratic society. Prescribed by law means that there must be a law that is relied on to violate a charter. And this just enshrines the rule of law in the sense that if the state is acting outside of its statutory or prerogative authorities, if there's no basis in the statute as interpreted under the common law or as found in the prerogative powers, then there is no law to prescribe the infringement of the right can't be prescribed by law. So this just comes back to that idea we talked about in administrative law and imports that concept that you need to find authority for state action into the section one test. This requirement of being prescribed by law though is very easily met. So long as you could show that the state actor was not acting completely outside of their authority, you're gonna have a limit prescribed by law. And the question comes down to demonstrable justification in a free and democratic society to show it's a reasonable limit that can be demonstrably justified in a free and democratic society. And the seminal case, one of the most important cases that has come up in Canadian constitutional law is the case of Oaks. This set out the famous Oaks test for how to interpret and apply section one of the charter. And this was a case, a criminal case, Mr. Oaks was charged with drug trafficking under the Narcotic Control Act. That's the predecessor to the Controlled Drug and Substances Act. 
And Section 8 of that act created a reverse onus, a presumption that someone possessing drugs intended to sell them unless they could prove otherwise. And so Mr. Oakes said, well, that violates my presumption of innocence, which is protected under Section 11D of the Charter. And the Supreme Court of Canada agreed, yeah, we can't just presume you're guilty of a more serious offense, trafficking drugs, simply because you committed the less serious offense of possession of drugs. So we have a violation of Section 11D caused by Section 8 of the statute. So the question then is, well, can this be saved under Section 1 of the Charter? And the court first notes that indeed it is the burden of the government to demonstrate that a violation of the Charter is justifiable under Section 1. Okay, so if the burden lies on the government, the next question you have to think of is standard of proof. Does the government have to show beyond a reasonable doubt that the violation is justified? Or is it a question to be assessed on the civil standard, balance of probabilities? And the court says the latter. Proof beyond a reasonable doubt would be too onerous. However, the court says, we are going to look for persuasive and clear evidence. Cogent and persuasive evidence is a phrase they use, but clear and persuasive evidence will be required ordinarily to prove a Section 1 justification. And what is the legal test for proving a violation is justified? This is the famous four-part Oaks test, a very important test to internalize for the purposes of studying the charter. So I'll go through the I'll list the steps quickly, but then I'll go back and go through them with a bit more emphasis. And we are going to see the Oaks test applied many times as we continue to go through the charter cases. So the first step, is there a pressing and substantial objective that the law is aimed at? Pressing and substantial objective, step one. Step two, rational connection. Are the means selected by the legislature rationally connected to that objective? So is there a rational connection between the law and this pressing and substantial objective? Step three, minimal impairment. Does the means chosen impair the right at issue as little as possible? And step four, are the effects of limiting the charter right proportional to the objective. This is general proportionality. So you want to think pressing and substantial objective, step one, rational connection, step two, minimal impairment, step three, general proportionality, step four. This is something that you should internalize and remember. This is an important test in Canadian law. To go through them in a bit more detail, step one of the Oaks test, pressing and substantial objective, is almost always satisfied the court generally defers to the legislature's choices in what legislation it has chosen to pass, and very rarely will it say, this is simply not an important enough objective to justify impairing a charter right at all. One exception to that was a, a case, Halpern in Canada, where there was a infringement of equality found by a definition of marriage that excluded same-sex couples and the court found that the objectives offered, uniting the opposite sexes, encouraging birth and the raising of children at the, of marriage, 
these were not pressing and substantial objectives to justify infringing a charter right. So that's an example of when the court will say, look, your objective here just doesn't even rise to a level where we could say we could infringe a charter right. You might be able to infringe a charter right. But generally speaking, the courts will find a pressing and substantial objective. The second step is this rational connection, also usually satisfied. What you'd have to show is not just that this isn't the best way to accomplish your goal, but that there isn't even a connection between what you say your objective is and what you're doing. An example of a case where a law failed at the rational connection stage was in a case called Smith, a 2015 Supreme Court of Canada case. Medical marijuana had been legalized, yet there was a law that required that medical patients acquire only dried forms of marijuana, not non-dried forms. And the pressing and substantial objective that was identified was preventing the diversion of the medical marijuana into the black market. But the court said, look, sure, preventing diversion of drugs from a medical use to a black market use, that's certainly pressing and substantial. But you haven't shown me how drawing a distinction between dried and non-dried drugs is connected to that in any way, shape, or form. So this was something that was found to be not rationally connected to the objective. The big one, the one where laws fail most often, is the minimal impairment stage. Does the law impair the right at issue as little as possible? We are going to get into this in much more detail in the Irwin Toy case next. We'll see that, indeed, you don't have to be the most minimally impairing method. It's not simply could the court envision something less impairing. We'll get there in a minute. But just for this preliminary purpose of setting out the Oaks framework, minimal impairment is that question of does the law impair the right at issue as little as possible. And the final one is a general check on the proportionality. The idea that is there a proportionality between the harm that's being suffered by the individual and what the state is trying to accomplish. You look at the actual benefits of the law and weigh them against the actual burdens suffered by the people who are affected by the law. And you make sure there's not a disproportionality between those two things that rises to a level that's untenable. Usually this step is, is met because if you have that objective that's pressing and substantial and you're minimally impairing the right to accomplish that objective, the courts will usually agree that there's a general proportionality. But it, it is a final check to make sure somebody isn't so grossly affected by an unconstitutional law that any benefit the state is getting is just overwhelmed by the harm that the state is causing. So for Oaks, for knowing the Oaks case itself, you want to think four-step test, pressing and substantial objective, rational connection, minimal impairment, general proportionality. We are next going to get into the Irwin Toy case and explore the question of minimal impairment at greater depth. So Irwin Toy was a case where a Quebec toy company challenged a law that banned any advertising directed at children. And the basis of this challenge was freedom of expression. 
And the court, we're actually going to talk more about the reasoning in Irwin Toy on the expression point in the next class. But the court did indeed find that the advertising ban infringed Section 2B of the Charter. So they had to go into a Section 1 analysis. And the court found a pressing and substantial objective, and they found a rational connection. And then they got to the minimal impairment stage, and they were faced with the question of, well, do we really mean minimal impairment? Is it enough for the person opposed to the law to simply say, well, you could have crafted this a bit more carefully and avoided or lessened the charter uh, impacts to me by doing this, this, and this? You know, is it, could you hypothetically imagine any way that would less impair the right? And the court decided no. The court decided that there should be deference to the means chosen by the legislature to accomplish its goal. And they said, in particular, when you're dealing with the legislature in its legislation, balancing competing interests, it's important that the court show a level of deference to its decision and not merely say that the court could envision some way to slightly lessen the impact. When the legislature is dealing with competing claims by different groups, protection of vulnerable groups, assessment of conflicting evidence, conflicting scientific evidence perhaps, or allocating scarce resources. You're just in the sphere where democratically elected representatives are better positioned than courts to make decisions. This is where we're not going to say, just convince me of any hypothetical way this could be better tailored. We're going to say that you need to show me that they didn't engage in a reasonable balancing. If you think in terms of a administrative law framework, it's sort of a reasonableness standard of review that's applied in the minimal impairment stage when you have these competing interests that the legislature is balancing. On the other hand, you have cases where the legislature is not balancing between competing groups, but rather is seeking to bring the state's power down on an individual to accomplish a state goal. This is called where the government is a singular antagonist. Criminal prosecutions is an example. In these circumstances, the court says there's less of a deference. And indeed, if you could show in a criminal context that the state could lessen the impact on an individual's charter rights, we won't defer to the judgment of the legislature. This is where the courts are well-suited. They know the justice system. They know the criminal justice system. They can recognize the least drastic means of accomplishing a state goal. So that general framework you want to have in mind, you want to think minimal impairment, it doesn't always mean the absolutely lowest degree of impairment that I could hypothetically think of. It's not going to be enough for me to just say, aha, legislature, you should have done this instead. And the courts will say, yeah, that might be a little bit better. Okay, I agree. You know, you win section one and your charter challenge stands. That's not going to work when we're talking about legislation that balances competing interests. When we're talking about Irwin Toy and we're talking about balancing the economic rights of a company in Quebec, the expression rights of that company through its advertising, and the rights of children in Quebec to be free from manipulation, that type of a balancing, we're not going to step in there and reweigh it and and interfere unless you're really off the mark. 
However, when we're dealing with the criminal law, if you're saying that this is the process or this is the proof that's required in a criminal matter, well, we know the courts, we know the criminal law, and we are not going to defer to you. We're going to make sure that you actually take a minimally impairing approach. So when you're using your Oaks framework, you want to think pressing and substantial objective, rational connection, minimal impairment. And in that minimal impairment step, you want to think of this Irwin toy deference idea. Irwin toy deference is the idea that when you're dealing with a law that's aimed at balancing competing interests, the courts won't demand the absolute least infringing mechanism they could possibly envision, but will instead defer to the balancing of the legislature and require only that a reasonable balance have been struck. However, when you have this singular antagonistic framework, you have the state prosecuting somebody. It's the state versus an individual, state interest versus an individual's interests. The court is not going to show that same deference. And then you remember at the end, you have this general proportionality final step. Now, I, I do think that's the right framework to have in mind. And it's descriptive of, I think, the generally accepted framework. You will find the Irwin toy deference idea is applied somewhat inconsistently by the Supreme Court of Canada. That doesn't mean it's not still the best descriptor of the approach, but you may find cases where you think this doesn't seem to exactly fit within this framework. There's maybe deference being shown where there ought not to be under that framework. I don't say that doesn't happen. I, I admit that happens. Still, that is the best accepted articulation of the applicable framework for section one. So that concludes this podcast on limitations within the charter. You want to think, what are the limitations on the rights guaranteed by the charter that are found in the charter? You think, okay, section 33, notwithstanding clause, you think has to be invoked, can apply to sections two and sections seven through 15 of the charter. The idea is there's going to be a political hit taken if you invoke that, and it's been rarely invoked as a result. And it may be the case that the existence of this has emboldened judges to take a more active role in striking down legislation. Then you want to think, okay, what's the other limitation? Section one, it's the idea that if you can show that a limit on a charter right is prescribed by law, a reasonable limit and demonstrably justified in a free and democratic society, then we will find that a right can be infringed by the state. And this won't be a violation of the charter. The guarantee is only that your rights won't be infringed in a way that is not justified. So if it's justified, you haven't in fact shown a violation of that constitutional guarantee set out by the charter. And you want to think, how do I go about a section one analysis prescribed by law, but that's a pretty easy bar. I'd have to be in a world where the state was acting outside of its authority to not be prescribed by law. But then I think Oak's test, pressing and substantial objective, rational connection, minimal impairment, general proportionality. And as I say, we're going to go through the Oak's test. We're going to apply it a number of times, especially in the next lecture. And so in the final part of this lecture, the third podcast, we're going to talk about remedies, charter remedies.